a few years ago, I uh, had the chance to go on a road trip with your now senior pastor, uh, Pastor Dave. And um, how many of you enjoy road trips have, or have ever been on one? Anybody, right? Um, and usually we like road trips um, for a number of different reasons. But this, this road trip was uh, memorable in my mind because it was a Sunday night football game between the Eagles and the Cowboys. And uh, if you know anything about that rivalry between the Eagles and the Cowboys in Philadelphia, you realize um, that they don't really like each other very much. Um, and, and they actually have a jail in the stadium at Philly um, because people get arrested so much at games. So it gets pretty intense. I remember going on this road trip with Pastor Dave, and uh, we were on our way there. We kind of did the tailgate thing. We hung out and saw the craziness, had some crazy fans next to us. Uh, I don't even remember who necessarily won that game. The game was over late at night. We ended up coming back home, made a few pit stops. We're driving in the middle of the night. It's probably 1, 2 in the morning. And, of course, I'm in the back seat. I'm the younger guy, so I fell asleep, and I'm like the deepest sleep of my life. And I am awakened to one of the most startling moments I've ever experienced in my entire life. And I woke up gasping for air in a huge panic, not understanding what was happening. Um, and in that moment, after gathering, you know, something like that happens and you get so disoriented. You, Did we get an accident? Did we drive somewhere? What happened to us? Are we going to be okay? I woke up and after about 30 seconds of trying to orient myself, I realized that my entire face smelled like hot chocolate. <laughs> and Pastor... Dave was in the passenger seat in the front of the vehicle, and he didn't drink half of his coffee or hot chocolate from when we had stopped, and he threw his coffee out the window, not realizing that the back window was open. (laughs) So I wake up thinking I'm getting waterboarded, right? I'm gasping for air, super startled, don't know what's going on, and um, he just starts crying. I think he cried laughing the rest of the way home and uh, because of that experience. And um, whenever we talk about that road trip, whenever we talk about that, that game or that experience, I, I honestly, I can't remember the score. I can't remember anything about the game, really. I don't even remember who won. I don't remember anything. But when we talk about that road trip, what's the one memory that we have that we always laugh about? You know what I'm talking about? The moment he threw hot chocolate in my face at 2 in the morning. And I think that's why we like road trips, right? Because it's not necessarily about the destination, because we have a destination, but the destination is almost an excuse for us to do something together and kind of be on the journey together, right? And usually the most fun memories happen on the way to the destination. It's almost like the destination is an excuse. It's important for us to realize that because when we look at the book of Exodus and we see the journey that God's doing to draw his people out, we see that it's not so much about God just putting them in the promised land, but we see that it's more important for God to do a work in their heart along the process, that there is power in the process. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And oftentimes, we think of our lives as a series of destinations. If I arrive at this place, if I achieve this, if I go here, if I do this, if God brings me to this place, then I will have arrived at the promised land. I want to present to you this this morning. Maybe it's not so much about getting to the promised land physically as much as it is what God wants to do in your heart to shape you through the process. You know what I'm talking about this morning? 
And today we're going to see, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about probably one of the uh, most significant uh, stories in the Old Testament. And it's very hard to overstate the significance of the Red Sea crossing. When you look at the Old Testament, it's mentioned a number of different times. When you look at the New Testament, it's mentioned a number of different times. And the entire redemptive narrative of God working through his people is hinges on this crossing and this miracle of God's people crossing over the Red Sea to the other side. And when you look at this story, you realize that to kind of set the framework for us to understand the, what's really happening in Exodus 14, in Exodus chapter 13, we see that God leads his people in a really interesting direction that it really should have only taken them about two weeks to arrive at their destination if they went along the shoreline. I think verse 17 in chapter 13 tells us that. But God chose not to go that route because there was the Philistines there and all of the different types of people. And he knew that if his people had to face war, then they would actually be disheartened and want to go back to Egypt. So what seemed like the best, easiest route to take to them was not the route that God took them, actually. It should have only taken two weeks. It ended up taking them 40 years. And God leads them not just in the longest route. He leads them to a place that is pinned up next to the Red Sea and eventually is being chased by Pharaoh and his army. So God actually leads his people to a place that is beyond human comprehension to even begin to understand. He leads them to a place where they are in the most hopeless situation they have ever experienced as the people of God. They do not understand it, and yet God wants to show them something, and he wants to teach them something through this story. In fact, you see it over and over and over again in Scripture that this is possibly the best picture of what the Bible and God and his character show us about salvation. It's the best illustration that we can look to as far as what it means to experience salvation. And how many of us have been in that place before, right? God leads us to a place. We don't understand it. It doesn't quite make sense. Um, But he always wants to do something. And when you look at chapter 13 to set up the framework for this, you see that there's another interesting verse in verse 19. It says that the bones of Joseph, that Moses took the bones of Joseph the guy that we hear about in Genesis, he had the, the dream coat thing with all the different colors and the brothers, they threw him in the pit. He went to Egypt. He was in charge. We all know the story of Joseph for the most part. Um, if not, take a look. Uh, it's a huge portion of Genesis. And it tells us that they took the bones of Joseph with them, which shows us that God fulfills his promises. Because one of the things that you see in the life of Joseph is Joseph so believed that God was going to bring his people to the promised land that he said, when this happens, I want you to promise me that you will take my bones with you to the promised land, to Canaan, when you go. And we see here many, many years later that God always fulfills his promises. So God's people are being led to a place they don't understand, but they're seeing the promises of God being fulfilled and unfolded. And then not only that, not only do they see themselves in this place and they see the promise of God being fulfilled with Joseph's bones, but in verse 21, it says this. It says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night a pillar of fire to give them light, 
that they might travel day by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So they don't just have the promises of God. They actually have the presence of God with them and leading them and guiding them every step of the way. And that's a pretty cool place to be, right? God leads you and God's guiding you. He's physically there in front of them. And we talk about this, um, we talked about this several weeks ago with the burning bush, that fire is a representation of God's presence. So God is with them. And in spite of the fact that God's presence is with them and his promises are being fulfilled through them, they're sitting in this place of hopelessness and they have no idea what to do. In fact, all throughout Genesis, Exodus chapter 13, it says that it tells God's people to remember this day that they're going to come out of Egypt. Verse 9 says, for with a strong hand of the Lord, he has brought you out of Egypt. Verse 14, by a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Verse 16, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 14, verse 4, he tells us that I will get the glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God is telling them to remember, 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 and to focus on my strength, to focus on my magnitude, to focus on how the strong right hand of the Lord will fight for you. And in the midst of all that remembering, in the midst of all that reminding, in the midst of God's presence being before them, they're in the midst of a hopeless circumstances, and we begin to see them doubt and wonder what to do. So when we talk about this idea of salvation and what God's doing and what, how he wants to work, we got to ask ourselves uh, a couple different questions. And the big idea here this morning is very simply that God works for you so you can walk with him. That God works for you so you can walk with him. With him. There's actually some of the verses here that we're going to read in a few moments. Actually, some of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture, it tells us that just be still and God will fight for you. And for us to begin to understand salvation and what God is bringing us out of, we have to first ask ourselves the question what are we getting out of? What is it God is rescuing us out of? We've talked about this week after week, that the story of the Exodus isn't a story about other people. It's not a fairy tale from far away. But in the story of the Exodus, God wants us to see that he is drawing us out right now, you and me, that he is drawing us out of bondage so that we can enter into a relationship with him, so that we can walk with him. That's what he's doing for us. So we got to ask ourselves the question, what is God bringing us out of? So turn with me to Exodus chapter 14, and we're going to kind of camp out for several verses this morning and just see what God has here for, for us. Exodus chapter 14, verse 10, it says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not, is not this what we have said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And the reality of this text 
causes us and confronts us with ourself and what God might be freeing us from. And when you look at this narrative, you see that in these verses, the people of God are going to Moses and saying, didn't we tell you this? This is a terrible idea. We told you from the beginning that we'd rather be in Egypt. And you see that they're actually delusional because if you go back to what they actually said, it says that they actually fell and worshiped. They thought it was a great idea. They believed the strong hand of the Lord was going to fight for them, right? So they're delusional. They begin to have a mindset that they are a slave, even though they've already been set free from slavery. You know what I'm talking about? That they had been set free from the penalty and the power of sin, but that God was still working in them to set them free from the mindset of being a slave, That they were still, even though they were out of Egypt, they still had that mindset. And even though we in our lives, we know this um, in terms of theological terms, that we know that when we enter into faith and trust in Jesus, we are justified, we are set free from the penalty of sin, but we also know that we are in the process of being sanctified, which means we're being set free from the power of sin, right? God is continually making you better. He's continually growing you. And one of the things that we see here is that even though they're out of Egypt, they still have the heart of a slave, that God still has to work in them so that they can be set free. And oftentimes we kind of consider ourselves to be set free when when we have complete freedom, right? When you're not accountable to anybody. But when you look at the story and you begin to see what God says, God never says, let my people go. He doesn't say that. He says, let my people go so that they can worship me, right? He doesn't just say, let my people go so they can be free. He says, let my people go so that they can actually enter into a worshipful relationship with me so that every aspect of their life is now lived in a response to who I am. And when you compare what their response is to what Moses' response is, you look at Moses' response here and Moses' calm Moses is collected. Moses is confident. And if you were here several weeks ago, you realize that that's because he had that face-to-face encounter with God, that the fire of God in the burning bush moved towards Moses, and that he knew that this relationship was built on the covenant of God, and that God was not going to let him down. He had that encounter, but the people have not had that encounter yet because they had not made it to Mount Sinai. They have not entered into the worshipful relationship with God, where they have been taken back by his presence and been overwhelmed with his goodness and worshiped him. They haven't had that security of that covenant relationship yet. So, but Moses had, and it changes his mindset. And when you look at the people of God, by our modern definition of freedom, they're the most free they will ever be. They're not in Egypt anymore, so they're not a slave, so they're free from the Egyptians and slavery, but they're not at Mount Sinai, so they're not even a slave to the law yet. They're not even following God yet. So even though they're free, they're still a slave. They're still captivated by fear. They're still overwhelmed with uh, what could happen. They still have their own heart issues that God wants to work out with them, and they're objectively free from condemnation. They're objectively set free from Egypt, but yet Egypt is still in their heart, that mindset. We know that, right? That, that Romans 8, 1 says there is no condemnation for those in Jesus, but, but oftentimes it's really hard for us to actually live free from that. And now there's four things I want to kind of start to land the plane here for us with this, with this idea that God sets us free from bondage today. All of us, every single one of us in this place. And you might be familiar with this if you've been around for 
any number of weeks. Pastor David, I'm sure, has used very similar language because I listen to him regularly on the podcast, which you should too, by the way, if you miss a week, and share with everyone you know. Um, But when you ask yourself, how does this relate to us? The first thing you realize of what we're in bondage to is the fact that um, everybody lives for something. And the term that we oftentimes use for this is idols, that every single, every single one of us has something that is the driving force behind our life. Everybody lives for something, that if I achieve this, if I go here, if I get here, then I will be significant, then I will be worth something. Um, there's a movie called Rocky that everyone that has lived the last 40 years, I'm sure, has heard of, all right? And uh, in that movie, in the Rocky one, he says, um, he's talking to Adrian, and he says, if I just go the distance, I will know that I'm not a bum, right? He doesn't even want to win. He just wants to go the distance. In fact, if you go to the end of that movie, he ends up losing, and, uh, and Apollo says, there won't be a rematch. And he says, I didn't even want one. <laughs> and he says, I don't even want a rematch. I just wanted to prove to myself that I could go the distance so that I wouldn't be a bum. Now, all of us in this place might not use that exact same language, but there is something that you're telling your heart every single day of your life that if I do this, if I achieve this, if I go here, if I um, have this relationship, if I have this status, if I achieve this, then I won't be a bum. And every single one of us right now is living for something. Number two, in regards to our bondage, we start to, we, we have another thing here. Number two, whatever you live for, you serve. So whatever you live for, you're actually serving. It's actually your master. It's something that you will sacrifice for. In fact, if you look at um, Exodus chapter 16, um, you're going to see this again and again and again with God's people where it says, in e- where the people will say this, they'll say, in Egypt we sat around mountains of meat and we ate all the food we wanted, yet you have brought us into the desert to starve. And a- in other words, they're saying we weren't slaves and they're delusional. They, they did not have mountains of meat. They were working for free. People were dying. They were unbelievably oppressed. And yet, they didn't see the fact that they were serving what they were serving in Egypt, right? So every single one of us, we are serving whatever it is that we live for. We are a slave to wealth or a slave to the law or, or we're a slave or controlled by whatever it is. That whatever it is in our life, we will sacrifice and do whatever we can to get it and we will serve it, whatever that thing is, right? Number two, you're serving something. Number three, whatever you are living for will control your life even if it's a good thing. We talked about this. Pastor David has talked about this numerous times. I've heard him, where oftentimes the the biggest idols in our life aren't even bad things. They're actually good things that we make ultimate God things. Our marriages, our kids, right? And when we do that, we're actually beginning to sabotage the very things that we um, care about, even if they're a good thing. Like we can look at even religion or church activity and we can look at good things and we can make them ultimate things. We can think that if God worked this way in the past in our church family, then he, we have to continue to do this program and that program can in and of itself become an idol. We can look at our marriages and we look to somebody and we say, I'm looking to you for hope and strength or whatever, but if you've been married for longer than two minutes, you realize that um, you're really not the nicest person to live with all the time and that you're going to let that person down. 
And if you put your hope and trust in somebody, then they're eventually going to let you down. That's a good thing. Marriage is a good thing. But when it becomes an ultimate thing, it begins to actually break down. You see that with parenting, right? The kid, the, the kid that has parents that are living vicariously through them, and the, the kids are the idol, and the kids are, you know, you got the helicopter parents. It's like the number one sure way to screw up your kid is to, like, make them an idol, right? Because so much pressure is on them, and you, their failures are your failures. And we see that even the good things in our life, when they become ultimate things, begin to break down. And lastly... If you ever fail the thing that you've built your life around, it will come after you, and you will say, serve me or die. And this is the number one way that you can tell, is something in my life an idol, is if it were taken away from me, if I lost it, would it be worth living? If, you, if, I, if, you were, if I were to say this one thing, or the, the, if, if you were to take this thing away from you, if you were to lose it all, if you, were to, if you were to lose all the money, if you were to lose the job, if you were to lose this one thing, and you would suddenly lose all hope, and you would ask yourself, is life even worth living at this point? And oftentimes, the way we answer those questions and the way we talk about those um, helps us understand what's really happening in our heart. What are we really a slave to, and what are we in bondage to? A few years ago, before I started dating my wife, um, one of the things that I would do is I would just go on random vacation, road trip type things, because when you're single and you got a little bit of money and a bunch of time, you just kind of do whatever. And um, I remember this was when I actually learned that she liked me a little bit was because we went to Mexico for two weeks. And um, when we went to Mexico, it was right around the time where Americans were getting kidnapped and stuff like that. And even though it was like Mexico's kind of big and it was on the other side of Mexico, the mindset um, was that we were all going to die. All right. So um, we went to Mexico. We went to this little surfing town that was like an hour and a half below California. We hung out for you know, 10 days, and just kind of had a fun time with a few of my friends, pretending like we're surfers. And um, I never even was able to stand up on a surfboard. But my friends actually did learn how to surf, and they kind of rubbed it in. And um, I considered myself a professional floater, okay? And uh, believe it or not, when you actually get into the legitimate ocean, like the big ocean with big waves and stuff, it's actually really hard to get out past the waves, all right? They just kind of crush you, and it's hard to do it. So I considered it a victory just to actually get out there and float, and uh, a few days in, I, um, I actually got past the ways I was feeling accomplished. So I was just kind of sitting there in the wetsuit, soaking up the sun, feeling like a California surfer. And I kid you not, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I saw a shark fin, right? A legitimate shark fin sticking through the water. And I, lo- I lost my mind. I literally... And uh, I... I completely lost my mind. I started freaking out and started screaming like a, like a crazy person, right? Get out of here. I'm trying to save my friends. Save yourself. I will allow myself to be eaten for you. Save yourself. You're the better swimmers. You can surf. Surf away, you know? And uh, I, after about like two or three minutes of me screaming like crazy, my two friends actually come over and I'm like, no, save yourself. What's wrong with you? Get out of here. And they're like, you're an idiot. It's a dolphin. Okay. <laughs> To this day, I still believe it was a shark. But anyways, <laughs> apparently dolphins go like this, and they go up and down, and sharks just kind of eat you and go like this, all right? So who knew? Who knew, all right? I got to watch more of the Discovery Channel to learn that and figure that out. But oftentimes in our lives, we don't think that we are 
a slave to something. We don't think that we're in bondage, right? But I want to ask you this. I want to ask you this. Think of your life and maybe some sinful things that might pop up here and there, or maybe an attitude that pops up here or there, or maybe an action that pops up here or there. Think of that as the fin of the shark, if you will, if you can visualize that in your mind. And that behind every sinful action that you can see above the surface is an even more deadly cause of that action that's a heart idol beneath that. So oftentimes what we see, whether it be a lust issue or a greed issue or a pride issue or an anger issue, isn't necessarily those issues. That's the shark fin. But beneath that, God wants you to look beneath the surface and ask himself, what is it he really wants to set you free from? What is it that's really driving those actions in your heart? What is it that we really want to live for? And you will begin to to see that. So the first thing you see is that they have to be set free from bondage. They're out of Egypt, but they still have Egypt in them, right? And every single one of us, we have things that tend to draw our hearts, idols that we can tend to live for. Number two, um, we got to ask ourselves the question, how are we going to get out? How in the world are you going to be able to get out? In verse 13, let's continue. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. That there is absolutely nothing that they can do to contribute to this rescue. All they have to do is sit still and be silent. You see, what that was in this moment, they were under the certain penalty of death. They had a judgment that was coming in Pharaoh's army. They knew with certainty that they were going to die. And in this moment, God tells them that you will be rescued by an act of myself, this, that you absolutely have nothing to contribute to this process. And this is actually what we kind of, um, what sets the belief of Christianity in the person of Jesus apart from every other religion in the world is the fact that every other religion says that you are converted to this particular belief and that if you do these things, then you will eventually make it to God. Then you will eventually make it to enlightenment. Then you will get to where you want to go if you behave and live this way. But here we see that that God actually says something completely different. He says, stand still, be silent. Don't do anything. And that shows us that salvation is a complete and utter act of grace that is not dependent on us. Jesus gives us a completely different mindset um, for salvation and what it means to be rescued. In fact, if you ask somebody, are you a good Christian, right? And they say, I'm trying. That shows that they have no idea what they're actually believing in. And that it's not made it into their heart. Because what belief in Jesus is, is it's a status change. It's that you are once dead, and now you are alive, and that resurrection has nothing to do with you whatsoever. It's a sheer act of God's grace on your behalf, that you are dead, and that you are now alive. We see this over and over and over again. In fact, Jesus uses very similar language in John 5, 24. He says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. He has crossed over. Do you hear that, that, that language, that same terminology? That they, like they crossed over the Red Sea, that you cross over from death to life. And that's exactly what happens, that you are, have a status change, and it's a sheer act of God's grace. And I want you to see two things, crucial things, absolutely 
wonderful things to see here. Is God doesn't say at Mount Sinai, right? The, the whole series is from, from slavery to Sinai. They don't get to Mount Sinai, and then all of a sudden, God gives them the law, and God doesn't say, all right, here's the law. Obey the law so that I can bring you out. He brings them out before he even gives them the law. And that shows you that there's nothing that you can do to earn your way into salvation and grace. That God brings his people out before he even gives them the rules that they are to follow. And he's telling us something there. He's telling us that this is an act of grace that's dependent on his goodness, that salvation is apart from obeying the law. And another thing that was interesting is that every single person that crossed over by grace was set free um, equally. And I guarantee you there's two types of people that crossed over in the, in, the, in the Red Sea, right? You had those people that walked over that were like, man, this is so cool. This is like the 11th plague. This is so exciting. It's so cool. They're probably like the kids. They're like, sweet, the coolest Sunday school I've ever seen, right? And then there's probably other people that walked through there that were going, oh, my goodness, 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 are we going to die? And they were nervous. But they equally were rescued, they all crossed over. And that shows us that it's not, the, it's not the amount of faith that you have. It's the object of your faith. And we can see here that God rescues his people as a sheer act of grace. And they continually go back into their old ways over and over and over again. They forget. Oh, and you, you, you can't say that this is because God's people were good, because in just Exodus chapter 16, they forget all over again. They go back into the same gripes, and then you see it repeatedly over and over and over again that it's not based on their goodness, but that God brings them over to display his goodness. Number three, we've got to ask ourselves the question, why can we get out of it? And we see that God always saves through a mediator. Verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch it out, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. It's interesting here, if you look at these verses and you see that God actually rebukes Moses, right? You look at the, look at the verses here. Um, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? He's kind of giving him a smackdown, like, what's your deal, all right? And we see that Moses is the one that's living with perfect faith. He is strong. He is confident. He's in a covenant relationship with God. And Israel's the ones that are doubting. They're fearful. They're worried. They're um, complaining. And yet God throws the rebuke at Moses instead. And what this is doing is this, this is pointing us to the fact that Moses is the mediator between God and his people, right? He's taking on the blame. He's taking on the pressure. He's taking on that. He's the mediator between God and his people, and that's pointing to the greater mediator in Jesus, that this whole story is showing us that in order for you to be able to get out, you need somebody to actually act on your behalf and be the mediator. That's exactly what this text is showing us. I'm not a very cultured guy, right? My wife, one of the things that caused her not even to want to marry me was the fact that, you know, I order Domino's and I only stay in the United States of America, right? Like, like I'm the guy that's like McDonald's, Domino's, um, baseball, English, right? Like I, like I stay here, right? I feel comfortable. 
Uh, I don't like to go anywhere. But she's adventurous. She likes to travel the world. She likes to go everywhere. So last year, we went to India because that's where her family's from. I went with her mom. I'd never been to India before. And it's crazy over there, right? It's like survival of the fittest up close in, in real life. And I walked over there. Or I, I didn't walk over there because that would be impossible unless there, was, <laughs> unless there was another Red Sea thing with the ocean. But um, we flew over there. And the one thing that made it okay, the one thing that actually was comforting to me was that as we were walking through the airports and no one spoke English, as we were walking through the markets and people came up to you and grabbed you and were yelling at you and you didn't understand what they were saying, was the fact that her mom speaks like seven languages. And she just starts like yelling at people in like some gibberish I've never heard of before. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm just staying with you because if I'm staying with you, I'm good, right? And my wife likes to go to the shops and haggle with people. I'd rather give somebody $10 just so I don't have to deal with them, okay? Like I don't like that. I don't like bartering and doing all that. But as long as I was with her, she was communicating on my behalf and telling people that were trying to take advantage of the crazy, you know, American white guy People were trying to take advantage of me, but I didn't have to worry about that because I was with someone that knew the language that was my mediator. I would be absolutely completely lost over there without her taking us where we needed to go and guiding us in what we needed to do. And the same is true in our lives. We will never, ever be able to get there on our own. We need a mediator on our behalf to work for us. And lastly, as we close the story, you look in Exodus chapter 14, verse 30. It says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. We see God has this incredible, um, this incredible 11th plague, if you will. It's an incredible act where you see um, God working. And, um, and it's all a result of him. You see that the people weren't good enough. They still had the mindset of a slave. They still were living with the slavery of that life was better the way it used to be, and they wanted to go back to the way it used to be. And God is setting their heart free, and he wants to bring them to Sinai so they can come to a place where they can worship him. And we see that the only reason why they were going to be able to cross over was a sheer act of God's grace. They couldn't provide anything. God tells them, all you have to do is be still, be silent, stand still so I can fight for you. And it takes all the power away from us because as soon as we have absolutely nothing to offer, then we can't demand anything of it, and God can demand everything of us. So there's nothing God can't ask of us when salvation is completely and utterly dependent on him. So this morning, I just want to ask you two questions as we kind of wrap it up and close is, what's going on beneath the surface in your heart, right? If we're going to do the shark analogy, what are some of the symptoms that you see in your life that pop up that you know are not evidences of the fruit of the Spirit, that God's not a part of those things? And then I want to invite you to look beneath the waterline, look beneath the surface to what's really deadly, and that's the shark itself. That's the heart idol that's driving that. I want to ask you, look beneath the surface in your own heart. Ask yourself, what is it that's driving you? What is it you're living for? Are you out of Egypt positionally, but still living like you're in Egypt subjectively? Are you still going back into habits? Are you still living with unhealthy attitudes? What is it that you're constantly going back to even though God has set you free? And number two, look back to what's been done to set you free. 
look back and see that you can still enter into God's presence with confidence because salvation is a complete and utter act of grace on his behalf. That he has done on your behalf. That God has worked for you. And you have nothing to offer but be silent and stand still. One of the things that I like to do every now and then is I like to volunteer with the kids' ministry in our church. And um, it's kind of fun because kids are fun. And, uh, and I remember one, uh, one Sunday, uh, probably a couple years ago, um, I'm sitting there, and one of the things that you do in Sunday school, if you've never been in Sunday school or talked to the kids' church people, is if you run out of time and they're still going long in the big church, you just throw out crayons and paper, and it's like color. Like, you just color stuff, right? The color is like the best time killer for kids' ministry. Um, and I remember we were with little kids. They were about three years old, and uh, we got done the lesson. We had some time to kill, so I sat down with a kid, and um, we start coloring, and he goes, he's not coloring. Everybody else is coloring their picture. He's like, he's just quietly sitting there with his head down. I'm like, hey, buddy, what's going on? I put my arm around him, call him by his name, and say, why aren't you coloring? He's like, because I'm not good at coloring. I can't stay within the lines. So I was like, all right, I'll make you a deal. How about I color your picture for you, and you pick the colors? His eyes light up. He's like, this is the greatest idea. I love this idea. This is the greatest idea ever. So I was like, all right, let's do it. So I colored the absolute best picture if I might say, that you've ever seen, right? That you've ever not seen, right? It was awesome. Everything was perfect. The colors were a little off because he picked them, but you know what? Everything was inside the lines perfectly. We get to the end. His parents come to pick him up. As his mom comes to the door, he grabs a crayon, scribbles his name on the top, goes up to his mom and says, Mom, look at the picture that I colored. To at which point I grabbed the paper and said, no, this is, I drew this picture, right? I get the credit for this. No, obviously not. I was thinking in my mind, this little booger took the credit for my picture that I drew for him. <laughs> he put his name on my, on my picture. And I think it's important for us to realize that in our relationship with God, we have a mediator that has acted on our behalf. That in the picture of our life, he has colored within the lines perfectly. And that all we have to do is allow him to put our name on it. You have nothing to offer. So those moments when we give in to sinful habits, those moments when we go back to our Egypt mindset, those are moments that aren't your true identity. Because God's already colored the picture of your life. So you're actually acting out of character. You are set free. You are no longer a slave, but you're still acting like a slave. And God wants to allow you to work in his, in your, allow him to work in your life and your heart so that he can constantly draw you out and remind you that you're not in Egypt anymore, that you're set free, that he's made a way for there be to, to be a mediator on your behalf. This morning, that's our hope as a church. That's our hope that when we finally get to Sinai, we'll see a God that we can worship. We'll see a magnitude, the presence of God, the power of God. But we're not there yet. We're on our way. God wants you to know that he has acted on your behalf so that you could cross over from death to life. Let's pray.